All right, make sure you're at Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11, and we'll cover that text this morning. The topic we find there, Isaiah delivers the joyful news to the southern kingdom of Judah that God intends to comfort them after their chastening. The title of the message, Hey Judah, let me into your heart, then I can start to make it better. Lord, we love you so much, we really, really do, and Lord, we're stunned when we come together to realize that you love us more. You loved us first. You loved us from eternity. Yours is an everlasting love. You so love the world, even, Lord, that you gave your only begotten son, that whoever would believe on him would have eternal life. And, Lord, it's a wonderful thing to know that most of this uh, grouping today, most of us are living stones being built together into a holy habitation individually and corporately by your spirit. But, Lord, there's a couple of... uh, maybe more dead stones, rocks, Lord, as it were, that that need your life. And so I pray, Lord, that as we go through the word, your Holy Spirit would take your word and he would reveal to hearts uh, that love that we know to be true, that he would offer that forgiveness, Lord, that you always do, that the heart would understand what a sinner uh, is and, and how that person needs salvation. So bring many to faith this morning, Lord, we pray. Not just here, but over with the children's ministry as well. Uh, Lord, you said suffer not, uh, you wanted children to come to you and not be opposed to that, Lord. And so uh, we pray that the children would not just come to you, but come to you in salvation. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. A half pound of linguine, marinara sauce, copious amounts of Parmesan cheese, garlic bread on the right, Chase that with a slice of my mom's recipe, New York cheesecake. That's my comfort food. How about you? What's your comfort food? Jesus often spoke of comfort food of a different kind. When tempted by the devil to turn stones into bread, a fasting Jesus quoted the Bible saying, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He told the Jewish leaders, I am the bread of life. Who comes to, uh, he who comes to me rather shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. If the word of God is bread, then the next 27 chapters of Isaiah are a comfort food feast. Isaiah's first course is the comfort derived from the Lord's coming. Verse 1, he says, comfort, yes, comfort my people. As I mentioned, the chastening was over. There would be comforted. And in verse 3, he says, prepare the way of the Lord because the Lord is coming. Comfort and coming go together like peanut butter and chocolate or soup and salad. The apostle Paul paired them when he gave the believers in Thessalonica a teaching about the Lord coming to resurrect and rapture them. And then he told them to comfort one another with these words. And so, for whatever other reason we study Bible prophecy uh, and, and get into it, uh, it is to encourage and exhort and comfort God's people. Because you see, God himself and the apostles, when people needed comfort, they said, let's look to the future. Let's remember where we're going. Let's understand what's happening. We would call it today the bigger picture. But it's a much bigger picture. It's an eternal picture. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, God speaks comfort, comfort. And number two, you speak coming, coming. Let's look at comfort in verses one and two. 
After 39 chapters, the nation of Judah finally turned back to God from idols. It was time for the Lord to speak comfort to his chosen people. And so verse 1, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Repetition obviously emphasizes something important. Today we would say, hear ye, hear ye, or pizza, pizza. I keep that theme of food going, right? You're going to be starving by the time we leave this morning. You're going to be fighting for extra donuts in the cafe. Contrary to their reputation as being a slew of despond, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah were pretty glorious. And if you do any reading outside of, you know, Bible study on Sunday morning and maybe pick up a devotional book or something, people always talk about how tough the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are. And if you can only get through them, finally you break through to chapter 40. And really, I, I, I don't know about you, but I thought the first 39 chapters were great. Sure, there's some judgment in there, but uh, they revealed so much about the prophet and about God and about Israel. Wonderful stuff. You can't dispute, however, that chapters 40 through 66 are full throttle comfort. Just for fun, I did something I'd never recommend you do for finding uh, the will of God. I opened a Bible randomly in Isaiah 40 through 66. And so I, I opened it, you know, so I could see the scripture uh, on top, but couldn't read any of it. And then without looking, I just pointed to a verse on that page. When I opened the Bible all the way, I found I was in chapter 61 with my finger on verse 4, which reads, and they shall rebuild the old ruins, they shall raise up the former desolations, they'll repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. I'll say that's pretty encouraging, right? And that's the way it's going to be from here on. I mean, there's, there's some tough stuff as well, but it's, it's generally acknowledged that this is uh, maybe the greatest writing of the Old Testament, of the Bible, maybe of all time, for, for the things that it brings out and, and for the encouragement we derive from it. First, obviously, to Israel, uh, but then we as Christians. You might need comfort. Maybe you came this morning hoping to be comforted. You might need correction or convincing or chastening maybe reproof or rebuke. The Lord knows what you need, obviously, and when you need it. And so if the Lord isn't comforting you or if he doesn't comfort you the way you want, you can be sure it's the way he wants. He might be growing you to mature you. The Apostle Paul wrote, he comforts us in all our trouble that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. In other words, comforters are made, forged in fiery trials and troubles. And so if you need comfort, you came here thinking, Lord, you're going to have to speak to me this morning. There's so much going on. The Lord might bring you that word of comfort through the message, through another Christian, as you just sit there and the Holy Spirit ministers to you. If you don't get it, he might be telling you, you know what you really need to do is comfort someone else who is struggling and in trouble. Serve someone else, and my comfort will come to you. Uh, And and so comforters are made, 
they're not born, as we might say, they're forged in fiery trials and troubles. If you are a fan of Iron Man, and who isn't, think back to when Tony Stark made the original Iron Man armor out of a box of junk in a cave where he was being held captive. Over time, obviously, he perfected the suit. We don't always give Jesus much to work with. Nevertheless, he's busy every day completing the work he has begun in us. We're all a little bit clunky this side of eternity, but it says now we are the children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The Bible says you and I are changed from glory to glory. And, and so you, you know, to keep with the analogy, you're, you're, you're one of the, you know, Iron Man suits in, in some kind of, you know, order. You might still be putting it together, you might just have put it on. Remember the, in the first movie, it's, just, it's so funny. And then, you know, but God is doing a work in you and he will perfect it uh, when he comes for you. And so whether you die and are resurrected or whether you are raptured, uh, the Lord will complete that work that he has begun in you. Verse two, speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. Speak comfort to Jerusalem is better translated, speak to the heart of Jerusalem. It is a tender, uh, intimate statement. You can be helped and touched and moved by many things. I still cry every time Lightning McQueen pushes the king across the finish line to uh, finish his last race. Give me a minute, please. <laughs> I am moved by that sentiment. But Jesus is the only person who can speak to your heart. He alone discerns between your soul and your spirit, the Bible says. Some theologians don't even know if there is a soul and a spirit. They say, well, no, you're just body and soul or body and spirit. We would say, well, we, you know, your body, soul, and spirit. But whichever it is, it doesn't matter in the long run. But only Jesus, only the word of God can really get in between all of that and speak to you from there. So you can be moved and comforted. You can be helped. You know, I'm not saying it's all dud, but uh, you can only really get help, eternal help from Jesus Christ. And so all other comfort becomes fleshly and false. Now, if that word comes from a Christian or it can even come from a non-Christian if it's biblical, but that's different. It's not saying that people aren't used to comfort one another. We are. We just saw that. But we really need to hold out for the comfort that God brings us. Because what happens so much, I know it happens in my life, is like, okay, Lord, here's the situation. Here's the trouble. You know because you allowed it, and I appreciate that. And so we're all on the same page. Now, what are you going to do about it? What are you doing about it? I feel like Jeopardy just going on and on, you know. And stuff, and then the tendency is to say, oh, you're not telling me, so you must want me to go to some secular resource. Uh, I, I need to go to a professional, or, you know, so the church isn't good enough, my pastor's certainly not good enough, he's not going to help me, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And, and so, you know, you start looking for other means. You borrow money when you shouldn't, or whatever it would be. We need to wait on the Lord sometimes. His, he is the comforter. And he says, not only Jesus, he said, hey, when I go away, I'm going to leave you a, the comforter, God the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you. 
Uh, and so we've got all that we need for life and godliness. We just need to sometimes be patient and wait. When you are talking to someone about Jesus, while you appeal to logic and intellect, that's okay. But don't forget God is using you as his voice to speak to their heart. He wants to speak salvation to the heart. It can be understood intellectually. It makes sense. It's logical. I'm not saying that's wrong or that it's all mysticism. But you need to speak to a person's heart. And you don't even know what to say, right? Because you can't see in their heart. You don't know what the real question is. They don't know what the real question is. It's a spiritual transaction. Years ago, it seemed like FedEx and UPS had more regular routes. Do you remember that? For years, we had the same UPS guy. He would come at the same time every day or thereabouts, 10, 15. Same thing with FedEx. And, you know, we'd, you'd have little conversations, and Christmas time you'd give them goodies and, you know, that kind of stuff. What a world we live in now. People pull up in Toyota Camrys, right? All beat up cars, you know, and they're, oh, I've got your uh, uh, LED TV in here in my trunk, you know. And it's like, who are you? I'm contracted to uh, DHS. Anyway, uh, so in a minute here, I'll remember what I was talking about. So the FedEx driver, uh, you know, we talk to him and, you know, every, you know, every now and then and have a relationship. And one day he's, you know, he's doing his thing and he handed us a package and he says, so what do you guys believe about God letting people suffer? How, you know, do you have to be somewhere today or what, you know? <laughs> But I started talking to him, and just a couple of sentences in, he said something similar to, because my daughter was killed in a car accident five years ago, and I've hated God ever since. I thought, oh, you know, I wanted to start talking to him about the six days of creation, about evolution, about, you know, this or that or the other thing. And what he's really asking is, can I believe that there's a God of love? when this has happened in my life. And so you speak to the heart. You don't know what, and really, you don't know what to say. You can't know what to say. It's impossible. But God knows what you can say. Now, he's not going to dictate words to you, but just kind of go with it. And oftentimes, I think the best way to go is to just ask questions. Uh, Because most of the time, people don't want the answer to the question they ask. They want the answer to a question they haven't asked. The Assyrian invasion had ended, and very dramatically at that. That isn't the warfare Isaiah is referring to in this verse. The Jews had been at war against God on account of their sin, their iniquity, he calls it. That's why God sent Assyria in the first place. The Lord wanted Isaiah to comfort them with the truth that now they were reconciled to him. God sent Assyria to spank them. And you saw in our last study together, Isaiah, or not Isaiah, but Hezekiah repented. He repented for the nation, and the people repented, and now they were reconciled. Reconciliation is, uh, here's a definition, the restoration of a relationship to a harmonious state after a dispute, the bringing of accord out of discord between two parties. Christian reconciliation is the work of God through Christ by which he restores mankind to a favorable relationship with himself. If you're a Christian, you have been reconciled to God. In Colossians, the Apostle Paul says, you were enemies, 
to God, not, you know, like we see here with the Jews, separated from God by your evil thoughts and actions, he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Jesus in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence. You are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Now, I want to say this reverently, but that's not true, is it? Are you without a single fault? Which one of you would raise his hand or her hand and say, I have no fault? I, you know, heard of no fault insurance? I'm a no fault person, you know. Nothing wrong with me, no sin, no fault. I'm not thinking ever anything bad. My heart is clear. I love you. Take all my money, you know, whatever it would be and stuff. And you'd be a liar because we all know that we're... Paul the Apostle, as he got older in the Lord, said, you know who I am? I am the chief number one sinner. No one sins more than me in, in a sense. Oh, wretched man that I am, what am I supposed to do about my sin? But God says, you know what? You're without a single fault. You know why? Because he sees you in Jesus. To be a Christian means to believe in Jesus. Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead. When he died on the cross, he says to the human race, if you will believe me, I will give you my righteousness perfect. I am perfect before God. I was perfect before God. I never had a bad thought. I mean, he was the perfect man able to sacrifice himself and substitute for us. He says, so here's my robe of righteousness, which will get you into heaven, and I take upon myself your filthy garments of sin and die for them. And so that's what's going on. And so now when the Lord sees me, I mean, obviously, if I'm living in habitual sin, I need to repent, turn back to God from my idols. This doesn't mean we're never disciplined or God doesn't care that we should be spoiled children. But you, you know what I'm saying. You're trying to walk with the Lord. The Lord says, oh, look, at, look at this guy. Look at this gal. Perfect. And the devil, it must drive him nuts, right? Because he knows you're falling for his strategies every now and then. And God still says, well, guess what they did? They repented and came back to Jesus. And so what do you want me to do? I see them in my son. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A restitution or a fine to double the amount of the wrong done was almost the normal standard of punishment under the law of Moses. So if you did something wrong, you're going to have to pay back double. You stole a sheep, you, you paid back two sheep, that idea. Uh, here the same thought is presented, but its opposite aspect. Israel had already received double for all her sins. Now she would receive double blessing upon repenting. God's going to say, you know, sometimes we think people after they repent... They need a half of a blessing, right? It's like, well, you repented, but we don't trust you now. And so we're going to watch you walk with the Lord for the next 20 years. And maybe after that period of time, you can once again park in the parking lot. Uh, but until then, we need to keep ourselves holy. We're starting to get a reputation that sinners come here. And we can't really have that, can we, right? And so it's, it's weird. I don't know how many times people ask me, out of nowhere, you know, you'd be talking to other pastors or ministers or people who go to church and they'll just say, so uh, when's the last time you practiced church discipline? What are you talking about? They're talking about going in front of the congregation. It would be like right now, say, oh, you know what? Can we hold this thought? There's something we need to do right now. You sinner. We got this sinner down here who won't repent. You guys all need to shun this person. We're kicking them out of the church. And so 
Praise the Lord, we did church discipline. Hey, church discipline is going on all the time in a church at a different level. You, iron sharpens iron. You know, people in the congregation, all of us are disciplining one another all the time. Sometimes, you know, real sin starts to explode and the elders or the deacons or myself will go and talk to people. Um, But as it continues to escalate, what I've noticed is people leave the church. And our idea of church discipline is we need to tell you that somebody is in sin so that their sins don't affect you. But if they leave, they leave. They're gone. The body is, is you know, clear. I'm not going to discipline people who don't come here anymore. Now, what we do, if they go to another church, we'll call the leadership of that church and say, hey, we were in the middle of disciplining this person. Here's the situation. That church sometimes won't do anything. Some of these people get so into discipline that their answer to that comes from a booklet that Jay Adams wrote, is that you now meet as a church. We get our board together, our elders and all, and say, we have to declare that church not a church. They're obviously not a church because they're not practicing discipline. Can you say weird? Can you spell weird? I have trouble with it sometimes. But can you say that? I mean, it's just, it's just weird. And so... Um, I guess there's such a thing that sometimes the Pentecostals call it greasy grace. Have you ever heard of that? You don't need no greasy grace. Repent. And, and so, so it, it's hard, admittedly, but, you know, God says about you, you have no sin. Wow. All right, so let's practice what is happening there. Maybe you're burdened by your past. The devil constantly throwing your singe in your face. If you confess your sins, what? He's faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Earlier in Isaiah, we saw that after Judah repented, God called her his virgin daughter. She'd been committing spiritual adultery. And God says, okay, that's over now. She's repented. Now I see her as a virgin daughter of mine. God blows my mind, right? The Lord instructed his prophet to comfort Judah. What word would you choose today towards our own great nation? Let me mention one thing. Hopefully you'll understand I'm only stating the obvious, not getting involved in any partisan politics. Many believers have historically voted based on a single issue, and that issue is usually abortion. Unless I've got it wrong, and I don't think I do, if things play out as they are projected to, The next presidential election will be the first I can remember in which there is no pro-life candidate to vote for, where this one-issue voting will not help us. President Biden, not pro-life, nor is the Democratic Party. Dark horse candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. had to walk back comments that made him sound pro-life. His campaign was quick to say, Mr. Kennedy's position on abortion is that it always is the woman's right to choose. President Trump is the presumptive Republican candidate. Maybe you saw him on NBC's Meet the Press tell Kristen Welker that his plan would be to negotiate with pro-lifers and pro-deathers and reach a, a common ground, which he believes is no abortions after the first 15 weeks and that everybody would go for that and be pleased. Now, actually, uh, Gino, because uh, we're involved with the CPC, gave me the latest statistics. 
91% of abortions are in the first 15 weeks. I mean, we, concentrate, you know, we always concentrate on the late-term abortions because they're so horrific, you can't even believe people would do that. But over 90% of abortions happen in the first 50. So, hey, President Trump, he's just not pro-life. And so if any of those people are running for president, I, I don't know what to tell you, but uh, that's between you and the Lord as far as voting. What I'm interested today is, really, meditate on it, what is God saying to the United States of America? It isn't comfort. He, he isn't saying, you guys have come through a long period of weirdness. Now I can bless you. We're going to at least be chastised. I think we're already being chastised uh, for many reasons. But anyway, give it some thought and certainly pray about it. You speak coming. Isaiah is going to be talking quite a lot about Babylon. The rise of Babylon and its direct effects on Judah were still 150 years future to this. Yet, that means that everything from this point on in the book is prophecy, and it is sometimes near prophecy, but often very far out prophecy. You will also notice that Isaiah speaks as if he was there in the future. He doesn't say then or when the he says, this is what's happening now. He could do that because God would faithfully fulfill every prophecy, and so he could see himself in that time. Verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. We jump here all the way to the first century and the ministry of John the Baptist. All four Gospels apply these words to him. He came to announce to the Jewish people their king had arrived and therefore their kingdom had come. We don't know for how long John lived in the wilderness, but we can assume he had a rough, unkempt exterior. He ate locusts dipped in honey. You can go to israelmenu.com, I know you're going to rush there right now, and click on food, and then health and energy bars, where you can order ready-to-eat whole Israeli locusts sourced from the banks of the Jordan River. Mmm. Mm -mm. The road construction exaggerates the leveling or smoothing out of the roads on which a dignitary would travel when he came to visit an area. I've often thought if our governor came here, we ought to make some potholes. But uh, <laughs> what's happening? Uh, we're just getting the road ready for our governor. Trying to figure out if I'm going to jail now or not. But anyway, <laughs> we today would say they roll out the red carpet. That, that's actually what we would do. We would roll out the red carpet for the governor and see if he wants donuts. Uh, you know. Verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. All flesh did not see together the glory of the Lord revealed in Jesus' first coming. It just didn't. Jesus was, you know in this little tiny area of the world, and even the people he ministered to didn't really see his glory except for the disciples who accompanied him on the Mount of Transfiguration. So this is looking forward to the kingdom of God on earth. In the Revelation, we learn that it's going to last a thousand years, and that's why we call it the millennium or the millennial kingdom. Millianum means thousand years in, I believe, Latin, and that is all the Latin I know. I think I'd know more Latin growing up in the Catholic Church when they always did Latin, right? 
How many of you went to church and it was all Latin? Or I should say mumbo jumbo, I think. <laughs> One of the Lord's unconditional, it's going to happen promises to the physical descendants of the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was that the Jews would rule over the nations of the earth from Jerusalem with a descendant of King David on the throne. The Jews will have a future physical kingdom on the earth. Jesus will come back, David will come back, uh, and Israel, Jerusalem, will rule the world. There will be nations and all, uh, and it's a real physical thing that's going to happen. Now here's where it gets wonderfully mysterious. John the Baptist and Jesus both announced, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus fulfilled messianic prophecies. He made the nation of Israel a genuine offer of the kingdom. They're both saying, if you repent, the kingdom will be established right now. The leadership of the nation decided instead to crucify Jesus. Jesus considered the offer of the kingdom on earth genuine if the Jews had received him. Well, how could that be? What happens, you know, because they don't receive him? So how can it be a, a real offer, but did God not know what was going to happen? Of course he knew it was going to happen, but how does that all work out? I don't know. I don't need to know. You don't need to know. But listen to Jesus. Here's Jesus' perspective on the overall issue. He once lamented over Jerusalem. You remember it. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. You were not willing. And so Jesus looks at Jerusalem and says, you've rejected me officially. Uh, you're trying to kill me. In fact, you're going to kill me. I'm going to the cross. And you are not going into the kingdom now. Now, graciously, we, as the Bible goes on, we learn that the kingdom is only postponed for Israel. God hasn't turned away from the apple of his eye. He is not through with them. He says, this, is, this kingdom now is postponed until the times of the Gentiles are full. I'm going to call myself out a church. It's interesting, uh, and I think it's in the book of Romans somewhere, it says one of the reasons God has the church is to make Israel jealous. And he wants them to be jealous so they will come back to him. And the purpose of the great tribulation is for Israel to be saved. That's one of the reasons why we always tell you that the church is not going to be in the great tribulation. It has nothing to do with us. We're removed and taken out of the way so that God can bring Israel back to himself. And in the Bible it says that's exactly what happens. They look upon him whom they have pierced and they will be saved. And so Jesus lamented over Jerusalem. Also, the Jews believed that Elijah would return before the kingdom. Jesus said, if you are willing to receive it, John is Elijah. But then he had an exchange with his disciples in which he said, indeed, Elijah is coming first and restore all things. But I say to you, Elijah has already come. They did not know him, but they did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking about John the Baptist. And so this is a mind blower. Uh, Jesus said, John the Baptist was Elijah, but Elijah is going to come. How is that? I don't know. So whenever these people challenge you on some kind of like, oh, how is this going to happen? Answer me. This is what Jesus would do, remember? He'd say, well, answer me this. 
How, how could John be Elijah? Or was John Elijah? No. Well, Jesus said he was. But then he said he wasn't. End of argument. Now, I don't need to know how that works out. Well, here's what happens. It drives me crazy that I can't explain things like that. I think two plus two is always four. Uh, but God is bigger than that. Not, it's not insane. It's not silly. It's not illogical or irrational. It's just something we can't understand. And so when I read some commentary on this stuff, especially the lament over Jerusalem, essentially what commentators say is, Jesus said this, but he didn't mean it. He couldn't have meant it because that would be weird. And it would go against our theology. And, and I'm sorry, you know, the offer of the kingdom was real. The Jews rejected it, and now the Lord says, okay, that's on hold while I raise up the church, and then we're going to get back with that situation later on. Verse 6, the voice said, cry out. This voice is probably God's and giving the command probably to Isaiah. Cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. All its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Okay, so we wither and fade like grass and flowers. Why? Ask your dad and mom, your original dad and mom. Adam and Eve's disobedience brought a curse upon God's magnificent creation. Wouldn't it be neat if the poppies that were all over the state this year were there all the time? Was it beautiful this year or what in some of those areas? I saw pictures of it, unenhanced pictures, you know, and stuff. I can never get poppies to grow. They grow in the cracks where I don't want them to grow on their own, volunteers. And I, I got beds planted that just weeds come up. But anyway, that's a whole other thing. But here I see the emphasis is on the loveliness of this grass and these flowers because there, God has promised that there will be restoration. Creation and everything in it is deteriorating now, but the Lord is going to reverse all that and totally restore all things. The Apostle Paul wrote this. He said that creation would be set free from decay and would share in the glorious freedom of God's children. I can't imagine the beauty of the millennial earth and then in eternity. Verse 9, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Zion is the same as Jerusalem. The Lord commissions them to go and tell it on the mountain, as it were. Starting in Jerusalem, then moving out to the cities of Judah, they are to preach good tidings. That is the gospel. That's what the word gospel means. Good tidings, good news. It's the good news that Jesus added humanity to his deity in order to die on the cross as a substitute and a sacrifice for sin. And then he rose from the dead in order to show that he had the power to do so. Now, these verses could be looking far ahead to the time of Jacob's trouble that is most commonly called the Great Tribulation. Because we see there that God raises up a ministry team, the two witnesses, and for the first three and a half years of that seven-year period, these two guys will be invincible going about sharing the gospel. And he also raises up a salvation army numbering 144,000. Ethnic Jews, 12,000 each from the tribes, uh, 12 tribes. I can't help but break into my Joe Biden. 
actually, the president this morning, I, he, had a, he did a really good job talking about American support for Israel uh, and didn't make up any new words or anything like that. I mean, it was really, it was really great. It was really great, President. President Biden, he's my president. Oh, he is. He's your president, too. <laughs> Lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. It also sounds a little like the day of Pentecost. God, the Holy Spirit, came as promised, and immediately the disciples, all of them, Jews, received a new power and boldness to share Jesus with unbelievers. They feared only God. Uh, Verse 10, behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. When is this going to happen? Well, it doesn't match what we know about Jesus' first century coming. There were no people accompanying him who he had made safe and taken in war. This sounds more like a description of the return of the king at the end of the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation. The people taken in war might be captives to sin like you and I that Jesus set free in his war against the forces of evil. So it's not him taking captive the forces of evil. It's him taking us captive away from those forces to set us free to serve him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. You know this song from verse 11? I love your blank faces all the time. What do you think I'm going to do? Make you sing it? you don't sing it, I doubt you're... No, never mind. Uh, it is a sweet song. We, how many do know the song? I'm just curious. I always like to take a survey. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. Oh, there you go. Now, it, now you know it, right? Okay. Me and you, Jackie. It's me and you. But anyway, and I'm a lot older than you, so I don't, I don't know what's going on anymore. The last words of God to Jonah, a question. Should I not also have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left, as well as many animals? Someday I'll tell you a funny story about that, but not today. Today I'm going to talk about animals. Really? Yeah, because it seems that God is an animal lover. He specifically says there's these 120,000 people and they're animals that I'm worried about. Came across this quote, it's no surprise that Christian abolitionists like William Wilberforce and Hannah Moore vigorously campaigned against animal cruelty. Care for animals is a mark of godliness. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. That's Proverbs 2.10. Will your pets be in heaven? Dallas Seminary professor of patristic Uh, knowledge, Dr. Michael Spiegel writes, how about in the renewed heavens and earth we are given the authority to resurrect our favorite pets? God can use the treatment of shepherds for their sheep to illustrate his treatment of you because he is compassionate and caring for animals. Has your kid asked you if Blackie's going to be in heaven yet? Come on, right? I mean, that's one of the biggest questions of youth. Am I going to see Momo again? What about Cubby or Kobe? What about, you know, Abigail? What about Kobe the Wonder Dog? I mean, you know, all these pets. What about my goldfish? And you know what? We always, I don't want to lie to my kid. No! Don't think that way, heretic. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know. You know what? Maybe, what do you know? 
You don't have to lie to your kid and say yes or no. You say, you know what, the Bible doesn't tell us one way or the other, but there are a lot of things that the Bible doesn't tell us. And what it does tell us is that God loves us so much that he won't withhold anything from us that we actually need. And so, you know, maybe in your mansion in Jerusalem, you open it up and Blackie's in there. Whether you can talk to you or not is another subject. But anyway, they don't need to know that you took Blackie out behind the barn. I mean, come on, you know. So at the conclusion of his discourse on the great tribulation found in Matthew 25, Jesus compares himself to a shepherd. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory all the nations are going to be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. The goats and the sheep are mortals who survive the great tribulation. Goats are unbelievers. They're taken away to, future, to await future judgment. The sheep are believers who are invited to become the first citizens of the millennial kingdom. By the way, Post-tribulation teaching, you know, if, if the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation, that means as Jesus is returning, the dead in Christ are raised and living believers are raptured, and they come back with the Lord to the earth, there are no mortal human beings who are believers left on the earth because they've all been raptured. And so there is no one to go into the millennial kingdom and repopulate that kingdom. Now, there are other reasons why the post-tribulation rapture doesn't work either, but that's a big one. And I've heard the most whacked-out uh, ideas about who is going to go into the tribulation. Unbelievers, pregnant women, uh, you know, just in order to try and make that work. It works with a pre-tribulation rapture because when Jesus comes back, there are goats and sheep on the earth. There are believers and unbelievers who have survived in their mortal bodies, and the believers go in. Kingdom starts with all believers, then they start to reproduce. Now, here's some Bible math. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 persons when they went to Goshen. After 400 years, they numbered 600,000 able-bodied men plus women and children, maybe a million people. How many believers will survive the Great Tribulation? Half of the population of Earth is going to be decimated. So, if that were now that would leave four billion people. More than that are gonna be killed though in some other areas. Uh, and let's say three fourths of them are unbelievers. And so, but even if you get down to a million people or a billion people after the first five, 600 years and then going to the end, you have literally the sand of the sea in terms of inhabitants of the earth, which is what we're told in Revelation chapter 20. And so um, I, I love that kind of math that I don't have to figure out. You are invited to a future feast. It's called the wedding feast in the Bible, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine, bright and, linen, uh, bright and clean linen. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Church age believers will be resurrected and raptured. In heaven, we will receive our rewards making us ready to return with Jesus at the end of the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation ends when Jesus returns with us to earth. A wedding feast on earth follows the marriage supper of the Lamb. Thomas Ice writes, just as wedding ceremonies today and the wedding reception of our day are 
often separate events. These two events are often held at two different locations, just as the marriage of the Lamb will be in heaven right before the return of the King, while the major supper of the Lamb will commence with the beginning of the millennium. And so that's kind of the scope of prophecy and how we're all involved with it. Israel, so important, so important. Don't confuse the church with Israel. God has a different program for each. In fact, for all eternity, there are going to be, there's going to be Israel, the church, and Gentile nations. You say, I've never heard that before. Well, if you've read Revelation, you have. The end of the Revelation, a couple of times we're told that there will be the church and there will be Jews, the nation of Israel, and Gentile nations who bring their wealth in and out of the new Jerusalem. We're always saved the same way, by grace through faith, right? Jew, Gentile, uh, you know, we're saved the same way. But we do have different purposes, different programs for eternity. God doesn't love anybody more than anybody else, but he, he can use the church to make Israel jealous, but Israel is the apple of his eye. And so just, you know, settle in to, to the fact that the Lord is coming back. Until then, comfort one another by emphasizing that coming. And listen to the heart. Listen to God's heart. Listen to your heart. Speak to people's hearts about the Lord.